15 years ago, you couldn't build a website in a day. You couldn't do it. You'd have to hire someone. It was all code. You couldn't update it. You didn't know how to deal with it. Now you can go online, buy a product from Alibaba, build your site on Shopify and launch a business in a day. That never existed before. So I think to be an entrepreneur or a small business owner to start something today, it is the best time to start and the best time to start without a perfect plan. This episode is brought to you by 4Laps. When I was searching for the perfect short to take me from a run near my house in Laguna right into a swim into the Pacific Ocean, I found the 5-inch 4Laps bolt short. The truth is I sometimes sleep in my shorts now too. They are that comfortable. I soon discovered that I could build an entire active lifestyle wardrobe to meet the functional needs of my busy job running my California-based production company. I wear the fashionable traverse pants with an open button-down shirt or casual sports jacket for pitch meetings and flex joggers and a radius polo on set when I really need to move around a lot. I highly recommend checking out 4Lap's full line for men and women. Use my special promo code BRY, that's B-R-Y, and get a great deal off your next purchase. This episode is brought to you by 8Sleep. Good sleep is the ultimate game changer and the 8Sleep pod is the ultimate sleep machine. I have a big announcement, everyone. Choose your form. The new pod three cover and mattress is finally here. For me, the three pillars of health are sleep, nutrition, and exercise. Sleep, especially on a thermoregulated bed at the right temperature customized just for me has been the key to me feeling my best and performing at a high level. The 8 Sleep Pro Pod is a game changer, I promise you. If you sleep with someone every night like I do, you would normally have to compromise with your partner on temperature, but not with 8 Sleep. The pod is the only sleep technology that dynamically cools and heats each side of your bed to maintain the optimal sleeping temperature for what your body needs. With the pod, you can start sleeping as cool as 55 degrees Fahrenheit or as hot as 110. You control everything with an app on your phone and it's really super easy. The result, clinical data shows that eight sleep users experience up to 19% increase in recovery, up to 32% improvement in sleep quality, and up to 34% more deep sleep. I can attest to this. My sleep has improved dramatically since sleeping on eight sleep. The new pod three enables even more accurate sleep and health tracking with double the amount of sensors delivering you the best sleep experience on earth. The pod isn't magic, but it feels like it. Go to 8sleep.com forward slash bry, that's E-I-G-H-T sleep.com forward slash bry to start sleeping cool this summer and save a ton with my special discount code. 8sleep currently ships within the United States, Canada, the UK, select countries in the EU and Australia. This episode is brought to you by Vimeo. I've been a pro user of Vimeo basically since I started my production company in 2010. Vimeo is for creative professionals like me and I use it in several different ways. For example, it's a place for me to upload my videos with a password for my clients to be able to review and download the work I'm doing for them. Uh, there's no compression, crushing of black colors, or oversaturation like what I get when I upload a YouTube video. My clients get the full 4K resolution HD as it was intended. I also use it to host and broadcast live events. I also use Vimeo for my portfolio, case studies, and it never has annoying pre-roll ads. I can create a customized player and keep people on my landing page so they don't get distracted and go down the rabbit hole watching someone else's stuff. What you may not know about Vimeo is that you can use it if you're an HR or if you own a company. You can put all of those onboarding videos all in one place, a nice, tidy, professional-looking uh, playlist or playboard where people can consume and understand or download all the new training videos all in one place. You could also do the same thing if you teach a course. Imagine putting all your videos behind a paywall, charging for it, and then you know, sending people the link with a password. Need a videographer, creative director, or editor? Vimeo lets you post jobs and find creative professionals. There's a ton more options, so I would suggest checking them out. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Johnson. I am the founder of May Wines. I also am behind New Money Ventures and Create and Cultivate, and we are here with Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey everyone, I'm Brian Elliott. Welcome to another episode. Jacqueline, welcome to the show. So excited to be here. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? Oh gosh, I mean, through a million different weird avenues and twists and turns, but I guess this current job, of which I have 
three, I feel like, um, most recently as the co-founder of May Wines, was sort of a happy accident in terms of finding a problem I wanted to solve and then going out and solving it, I guess would be the best answer. Yeah, so let's let's zoom out a little bit. Let's take it back in the chronology, back in the day. So um, you're a self-starter, obviously. Um, and from what I gather, just a little bit of research, you've done a lot of learning along the way or on the job. Yes, Right, it hasn't been like, you know, you thought of this website called Facebook, it got like millions and millions of, and then it was worth billions. Like it's been, it's been a, a journey. Constant work in progress. Yeah, so for those people who are starting in that journey, whatever age they are, age doesn't matter, I think, but like, let's start with that. Tell us how it all got started. Yeah, so um, I always like to tell a story because it all got started because I got laid off, uh, which is something I think a lot of people can relate to, especially right now, sadly. But um, I was always working in corporate, thought I'd always you know, corner office it for the rest of my life. Came here to Los Angeles um, and was let go from my job three months later. So I was in a new city uh, where I knew no one. My whole network had been in New York um, at the time. And at the time in Los Angeles, which was around 2009, the whole ecosystem of industry in LA was entertainment right. um, or gaming. I guess those two were like kind of, you know, hand in hand, but there was no real like marketing startup culture at that point in Los Angeles. So everything I do and that was on my resume was not super relevant at the time. And so I started to reach out to my network for freelance opportunities. One thing led to the other and I ended up starting my first business, which was called No Subject. It was a marketing events and influencer agency. Um, and at the time was really one of the first brands and agencies in Los Angeles doing social media marketing back when it wasn't even like called social media marketing. Yeah. It was digital back then, right? Yeah, digital, word of mouth, yeah. marketing is my favorite. Yeah, and, and so what did that look like? Yeah, so it was me in an office space in downtown LA that was um, absurdly cheap. You know, coming from New York, I was like, I can have office space, mm -hmm. this is so exciting. Um, and just a few employees and really just hustling to get clients. Um, and then cut to, you know, a year later, you know, we were working with uh, Urban Decay, Microsoft, Uber, et cetera, on putting together their influencer social media programs and events. Yeah. Uh, so what what kinds of work were you doing? Were you like taking uh, pictures with your, let's see, that would have been iPhone 2 yeah. at the time? <laughs> no, I mean, this is old school. So some of the early things we were doing, and, and the business changed over time, as most businesses do, but early days, we were doing social media management for brands. So we were going on their Facebook pages, creating the content, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond was a client. So we'd be like answering all the like people who were upset about their coupon not working with like our, you know, our spreadsheet of, um, you know, coined responses, things like that, like early, early days of social media. Yeah, I think back then, like a big title was community manager. Yes. Right? Yes. That so is you were what we did. Community managing tons of brands yeah. and who were also like just dipping their toe in that world for the first time. Yeah. Um, and then we started getting into events and experiential um, and we started doing a lot of openings and, and parties for fashion brands, which was super fun. And then eventually, you know, getting into the influencer world. And at that time they were called bloggers, mm -hmm. um, but working with bloggers on, you know, brand partnerships, we were, you know, going into forums and like, you know, talking to people about different product launches. I mean, again, this makes me sound 150 years old, but this was not that long ago. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, that was a thing, right? Because um, if you could get the attention of the influencer, mm -hmm. in that case, it was a blogger, then you could leverage their community and amplify whatever you're doing. I know, you know, whatever times the amount of that size of that audience. Exactly, right? and I had a little blog that I started in 2004, it was called Some Notes on Napkins, it's still on the internet. But um, it's interesting because I was in that blogging content creation world really early on. So I was on both sides of the coin. So I was working with brands to create campaigns and also was a blogger or an influencer. So I knew that at the time when we were working on this, agencies for the most part were treating bloggers like press. They were sending press releases mm -hmm. and or they weren't inviting them to events because they weren't technically the media yet. Where I was like, no, we should be sending them products. We should be working with them on things. And so we were doing early day blogger collaborations before brands even knew what those two words meant together. Yeah, like white gloving and yes. getting them VIP experiences and all that. hoping that they would write. Yeah, that was just, so you were really on 
just the, the the verge. You are on the crest of the wave. That's amazing. Yeah, I was I was definitely early days. I know my parents were like, "Wait, what do you do?" We're so confused. Yeah, and I was like, "Well, mom, here's what Twitter is," and you know, kind of going through that stuff. Yeah, with them. And, and at that point, Twitter is two years old, mm-hmm. so it's just barely a baby. Yep. people are just figuring out what it's for. There's some brands I remember during that time. I think Ford was pretty active. Mm. They did that whole like fiesta movement. And oh, yeah. They were using. We, at my first job ever in New York City, I worked at Attention, which was a, a agency that ended up being huge, but I was employee number three. I remember we launched all of Estee Lauder's Facebook channels and yeah. it was a huge deal. You know, they were the, one of the first large beauty conglomerates to take that leap and create those pages. Yeah. I mean, the. The musicians have changed a little bit, but the music is still the same. Yep. Whether you're talking about TikTok or, you know, whatever the flavor of the month is, mm-hmm. the principles are still the same. Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, you know, the person who cares the most wins. Yep. Right? The yeah. brand that has their ear to the ground, um, the community manager, the social media manager, whoever's at the front line needs to then listen and then relay important information. It's nothing, everything and nothing has changed, in other words. Totally, yeah, it's just different platforms, different mediums, and I think people have gotten, or brands, I should say, have gotten better at it. All right, we'll be right back with another word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you in part by our friends at WeWork. The reason I chose to have an office at WeWork is based a lot on flexibility. I started a decade ago as a one-person company, and now we have a growing team. WeWork has the space and budget for all my needs. From hot desks for one, to a full office setup with multiple people, I can grow, scale up or down whenever I need. I also love the community and other small business and entrepreneurs who work here. It's super collaborative, and everyone is in the same boat, willing to help each other out. If you're interested in a tour, visit WeWork.com, search by your city and zip code for WeWork near you. Now let's get back to our episode. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so take us from that phase to where'd you end up? So I started that company when I was 23 and, you know, was not a business person. I was a creative, you know, I was a strategist. I had come from that world. And so I immediately, as I like to say, went to YouTube University of being a small business owner. So figuring out all the QuickBooks, the back end, all these things, learned a lot of lessons the hard way, did a lot of things wrong. Um, and when I started to share this information with other women who were maybe freelancers or had their own small businesses, they were relaying some of the same struggles and concerns and problems they had. And so knowing that I had this background in events and marketing, I was like, we should put something together and get, you know, everyone in a room and kind of have these candid conversations. So in 2011, I hosted the first Create and Cultivate, which was a event at the Ace Hotel in Palm Springs. We got together 25 women, all of which I knew were all like people in my network and just hosted a day of panels, conversations, dinners, and kind of created this first offline experience. It was not a business. It didn't make any money. In fact, it lost money. But I was thinking of it as, you know, a way to connect with people, meet cool people um, and kind of create a network effect of what I felt was women doing cool things, working, launching businesses, but not talking about all the struggles that go along with that. And it took on a life of its own after that. You know, the next year everyone's like, when's the next one? My friend wants to come. And I was like, oh, I don't know. I thought this was like a one-time thing. And each year I started doing it and it got bigger. It was 50 people, 100 people, 150 people, 250 people. And I was running this completely through my agency as like a sort of a a lead generation business, you know, but then our clients at the agency were like, how do we get involved in this? And I was like, I don't really know, but I guess you could sponsor it. One thing led to another. And actually my business partner who ended up being my business partner at Creighton Cultivate was like, what is this thing that you're doing? And I was like, oh, it's nothing. It's like the side project. You know, it's a great way to get people together. And she was like, that's your business. And I was like, no, it's not. I was like, it doesn't make any money. Like it actually loses money, but it's great for this agency. And I know how to do that. I don't know how to make this, you know, a business. And she was like, I'm telling you, it's your business. Let's do one together. Let's throw a little money behind it. See what happens. So we did. We both invested a little bit of our own cash to kind of, you know, amplify it. Yeah. How much, how much was that? Like, So I put in $50,000. She put in (laughs) $250,000. 
hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay. Um, so like not a little, not a little, not bit, a little bit of money, but just to kind of say like, hey, we're gonna take this seriously. We're gonna take it to the yeah and next level. Yeah. yeah, and especially with events. So at that point, you know, we were gonna blow it out. You need a lot of upfront cash. Like you go out to get sponsors and to sell tickets, but in order to secure the venue and you know get the talent, all those things, like you need that cash upfront. Mm -hmm. So we ended up hosting our first big one in 2016. We had 350 people come. We had you know Emily Weiss as our keynote and it was a disaster like truly <laughs> we ran out of water like hour three did you have to pay for emily weiss <laughs> no no okay. we didn't we didn't pay any talent um you know she we just did it out of the goodness yeah of her so we had cool. um yeah and julian huff actually was one of our speakers at that one too and it was cool because she was attending all the panels but it was really the first i think conference at the time that was focused on women in business that wasn't like in a marriott in a stuffy weird conference room with a bunch of people in suits like it was Pinterest come to life. It was this gorgeous event. And um, I think it was really the first of its kind and people wanted to be a part of that. And after that event and how successful it was, you know, I was like, let's do this. And we took the leap and I started my second company, Create and Cultivate. So I guess the question I want to ask, and, and everything you're saying is very relatable. Actually, we we have walked a similar path. You may just not know it. Um, the same kind of thing happened to me accidentally too. And I got inspired after I read in 2008, Seth Godin's book, Tribes. And I kind of did the same kind of thing and, and realized, oh, I have a tribe. So I guess along those lines, the question I want to ask is, how did you decide, or was it decided, who your people are? Because I think that's one of the biggest challenges, whether you have a podcast or a YouTube channel, or you have a Netflix series, it's like, um, you, you gotta figure out who's it for and what's it for. So how did you figure out the who it's for I was who it was for. And I think okay. that's what made us so successful out yeah. the gate was that I was a business owner trying to figure out how to run a business, making all the mistakes everyone else was and was the only person that was like, let's talk about it and right. ask each other for help. When I looked online, I, you know, women's business, I remember I was Googling something about a contract, someone not paying us. And there was nothing online that looked, felt, or spoke to me as a young millennial woman at the time. It was all, you know, Fortune or Forbes and, you know, about massive companies, not small business. We're talking 2016 or 2000, between 10 and 16? Yep, exactly. I mean, those, that was the like high time of Ariana Huffington. Yeah. Right? Some of these more established, experienced business pros. But also, let's face it, I mean, she, you know, started the Huffington Post. She was, she had plenty of, you know, funding and resources, mm -hmm. um, political allies, et cetera. We're not talking about bootstrapping. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah. bootstrapping wasn't even part of the conversation, I think. Well, and yeah, and there's such a delta between, you know, that kind of leadership, female leadership, 100%. and everyone else. Yeah. yeah. And Ariana was playing in a boys club. Like, she was the woman in the boys club, because um, that's just what it was at that time. And so when all these women started coming up, like the Emily Weisses of the world, and women who were raising, you know, significant amount of venture capital, we started entering the conversation, even though... I, I never raised money for the business. I, you know, was interviewing all these women who were doing it to be able to say how, because everyone had the same questions. And it was interesting because anyone, any brands who showed up at Crate and Cultivate were like, I've never seen an audience so tuned into the speakers, like taking feverish notes, like truly absorbing every single thing. Because at the time, again, no one was having these conversations. So yeah. I was the audience in many ways. And I think that's what made it so authentic to our audience to be part of was that they saw me, they were like, you're doing what I'm doing. I want to hear from the people that you're connected to. And, and I think that's, if I'm going to, you know, grab a lesson, that's maybe one of the main points I want to underscore. And that is, if you see an itch that needs to be scratched, if you see a problem that needs to be solved, the hole that needs to be filled, whatever metaphor you want to use, that's a great place to start. Absolutely. Yeah. I think you've said it start by starting. Yeah, start by starting. Yeah. yeah, because I think everyone, a lot, at least a lot of people I know, have a gr have great ideas like about a business. But actually yeah. launching that business, <laughs> I mean, having a good idea for a business is a dime a dozen. But actually yeah. executing on that idea is the hard part. Agree, I agree. Uh, what else did you learn then along the way? So then I moved to this entirely different business, Create and Cultivate, which is a, a conference business at the end of the day, of which I had no experience in building conferences, um, which I think was a major benefit because I approached it in a completely different lens. So at No Subject, the first business, by the end of that business, and that business was sold to a strategic, 
we were hosting, uh, majority of our business was influencer events, right? So at this point, again, 2015, 2016, this was like the dawn of the influencer, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're on Instagram posting these gorgeous, lavish events, flower walls, beautiful branding dinners. And I remember my sister, who is a wedding photographer, photographer in Florida, messaging me and being like, God, I wish I could go to an event like that. And I was like, yeah, why? aren't there events like this for consumers? Like, why does this have to be just for influencers or celebrities? And so I I took that approach with Create and Cultivate and said, let's build a beautiful event that is super luxe, gorgeous, Instagrammable, and that really encapsulates amazing content for potential female entrepreneurs, small business owners, but is fun as well because women are multifaceted. I always like to say, you can come to Create and Cultivate and we'll talk about getting your nails done and doing your taxes. And those two things are totally okay because that's mm-hmm. what it's like. So we really w- captured that audience and really that experience on site. Yeah, I don't want to um, minimize how brilliant that is, that strategy, because I, I want you to break it down a little bit more, which is, what you're talking about is building a brand. Mm-hmm. And this show is called Behind the Brand. So let's break it down. First of all, let's talk about the name. Uh, how did you arrive at the branding and, this, you know, and the thinking behind that? Yeah. It, it sort of starts sometimes with that. Yeah. So I basically, in my, uh, my husband's a graphic designer and he did the logo. So I will give him full credit for that. Yeah. However, you know, he would joke that you're, he's like, you're a poor man's graphic designer because I would just like build random websites and keynote and like pull things together. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you're scrappy as a founder. Um, and Create and Cultivate was really about what I wanted people to get out of the weekend when we first launched it. I want you to create new relationships, cultivate new ideas. So call it what it is. Call it what it is. Or call it what it does. Exactly. And like it never crossed my mind to call it a women in business conference or women blah, blah, blah conference. And so the logo is not your brand. Yes. But, and, but you were building the brand with the vibe with what you were delivering. Yes. And you started by calling it what it does. Exactly. So that's another great lesson, I think. It's subtle if you missed it, but like, I mean, th- these are the foundations of building your brand, yep. right? The the flower wall, the Instagrammable. What, be more detailed. Like, what was your definition of Instagram worthy or Instagrammable? Yes. So I knew that everyone wanted to create content at these events, right? They weren't just attending, they were going to capture the moment and the essence of the event. So we wanted to make sure, and I was almost, you know, like a a tyrant about this, but every moment from when you arrived to when you left, that every detail was perfect. So from arrivals, like in line, trade passing coffee to everyone, you know, who had to like wait to get in, to entering, you know, going to your first session and learning about, you know, again, on the materials we would hand out, you'd have a map, you'd have networking moments, key moments, mm-hmm. we'd outline the Instagramable moments where they were on site. Okay. So you could make sure to hit every single one. Okay. We also- at- okay, So pause for a second. Yeah. So- Jacqueline is also an expert in UX and UI. And this is not just web stuff. This is the entire experience. This is the kind of forethought that goes into building a successful brand. This is like awesome 101 stuff. But like, I think it's so overlooked, right? Like um, even this studio that we're in today kind of looks like shit, I would have to say. (laughs) Um, It is not Instagrammable. It's functional, it's utility. Um, You might even call it a man cave. But at the same time, uh, you're trying to create a totally opposite experience. And you knew your audience. Mm-hmm. Like you mm-hmm. knew that these women were going there to learn, to have an experience, but also to then document and capture the moment. And you wanted to, to, to look the brand. Exactly. Yeah. And we, one of the things that was unique about what we did was we'd have, I mean, at our peak, I would say we had over 80 brand sponsors on site. And most showed up in a 10 by 10, 10 by 20 pop-up activation space. We would approve all of the set designs for all those activation spaces and give them a roadmap of the look and feel to use on site. And what ended up happening was we ended up producing 90% of the pop-ups because they're like, you guys know what you're doing, you guys handle it for us. And so, you know, 
Was that an upsell? Yes. Okay. Of course. Yes. Yeah. So, Amazing. Yeah. So we would upsell into doing the production for everything. And I think it was Adweek that did this whole, you know, kind of piece on us. But they were like, why does everything look so cohesive? Like, usually when you go to these events, you know, it feels like a trade show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's folding tables. It's pop-up banners, all of which are banned from creating Cultivate. Yeah. Um, we make brands show up in a space and we tell them, are you providing something useful and that can't just be free product what are you providing on site so yeah. brands doing headshots on site doing consulting on site brand refreshes site refreshes you know little treatments whatever it was every single booth was a full-blown experience providing value there's no fish bowls with people hucking business cards in them precisely yeah it's sort of common sense intuitive and yet how many people are actually doing it not that many right? at the time especially yeah yeah, and probably even now, I would think. Yeah. It's sort of... It's definitely exploded, I think, in the past four years, maybe three years, um, where there's been a ton of people kind of popping up and replicating what we've done, which is amazing. It's it's kind of crazy to think that you're the first person to start something to then see it spread its wing in different iterations. But yeah. I still think, you know, what we do is so special because we... No curate every single minute of the event down to writing every single panel question, approving every single panel question. And then I always say the cherry on top is if even if you had the worst day at Create and Cultivate, like you show up, you spill coffee on yourself, yeah. you miss your panel, whatever it is, you walk away with a amazing gift bag full of thousands of dollars worth of products. So I always like to say, even if you had the worst day, you're going to walk home, open that bag and be like, all right, I'm okay. That made up the difference. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm curious about approving every single question. How did you do that? So you had, was it you that was the moderator? Or you had other people moderating like breakout sessions? Or yes. how did you approve every single question? Um, I didn't sleep for many years. Um, but basically, uh, for a while, I wrote all the questions. And we have an amazing editorial staff that took over. But okay. we would write the questions for every single panel because I wanted the tone to be consistent across every panel. And I wanted really strong questions that would evoke tactical answers. Right. So I had been to a bunch of panels. I had also seen some of our panels turn out this way where everyone was sort of like, be authentic, be yourself. And it's like, what does that actually mean? So Right. And also, you know, it's like loosey-goosey. Exactly. That's what you get. That's what you get. And so we were diving into like, what email programs do you use to send email blasts out? Right. You know, how what was your first sales pitch and and what did, can you walk us through the first three slides? Yeah. Like super tactical. I learned that I can go home and use it right away. Exactly. The hypervigilance. I can just, you know, <laughs> yeah. feel it from Oh my god. I'm, I'm a psycho and I want to apologize to all those early employees. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so, how would you describe yourself then? Um, type A. 100%. Hypervigilant. Yeah. I mean, I'm hypervigilant in some areas that's not mutually exclusive to being type a um extrovert introvert ambivert i would say i'm definitely an extrovert yeah. i i love meeting people i love building communities and i think that at the end of the day with create and cultivate it was a brand that was built and now it's you know everyone a lot of people know the name but it was also building a community which i think is the hardest part of building a brand these days is finding to your point your people your tribe yeah. the people that are going to you know, be part of that brand, advocate for that brand. And I think that's why we were so successful is that we were, and and I was so laser focused on the customer experience and making sure that every single person who left would want to go to a friend and say, you should buy a ticket and go to one. So was that your major marketing tactic was word of mouth? Yeah, word of mouth. We never did paid marketing ever. Yeah. So, and again, those were the days when you could do that. Let's break down what you think a brand is. Let's talk about a brand and building a brand because you are building brands now. Let's go back to that. So you you thought of the name. You had your partner designing a logo. Your logo is not your brand. Uh, what is a brand in your opinion? I mean, I think a brand is the online and physical expression of your product in many ways. You know, I think with Create and Cultivate, um, we built this brand that really, I think, has taken on a life of its own in many ways, but has really been so focused and so clear for so long. And it's innovative and, and, and it's changed over the times, but I think we've really done a great job of not getting caught up 
in like what's the next new thing and do we need to change and pivot and like redo everything i think we've been really strategic about our approach and how we've grown the brand year over year yeah um, and how, how did, what are some of the things that you did? So, well, initially something that's kind of interesting is that we launched and, you know, I was really like focused on what's our tagline, like what's our, you know, whole, what's, you know, once people get to the site, they're like, what is this? What do you stand for? What's it about? And we initially launched with, we are a conference for digi female digital entrepreneurs um, or digital women in the digital entrepreneur space, something with entrepreneurs. And basically what we found was we got a ton of messages and emails that were like, hi, so um, I have an Etsy shop. So I don't know if I'm an entrepreneur, but I don't know if this conference is for me. And we were like, yeah, if you have an Etsy shop, you're an entrepreneur. Like, And we found that women had a really hard time calling themselves entrepreneurs if their yeah. company wasn't large or yeah, successful. Yeah. yeah. And we're like, interesting. So we took that feedback and then we kind of reworked it where we're like, okay, like let's like lean more into like small business. But then we also found that a lot of our audience had corporate nine to five jobs, but were looking to either start a side hustle or maybe quit their job eventually or learn how to like scale within that corporate environment. Yeah. And so we really reworked our, you know, mission to be for working women. Yeah. And, you know, we create if you have a pulse and, and you're you female, pulse, yeah. come the, we want you. <laughs> the modern working woman. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, no matter what stage you're at. And yeah. we have conversations and panels and content for women who just started a business, women who've raised two million, five million dollars, women who are in their nine to five and maybe looking to quit. So we really started tailoring our content to those personas um, and being more inclusive in, you know, that messaging because we were much like there's always these, you know, stories you hear like women don't apply for jobs unless they check every single box. It was sort of the same thing with us. Like unless they felt like they were a successful entrepreneur, they're like, is this for me? Right, right, right. Did you do any kind of segmentation? Like, because that demographic, which is working working women, mm -hmm. spans the gamut, right? Of, yeah. You know, uh, you're in college, you got a side hustle, all the way up to whatever age professional you're experienced. Ariane Huffington, let's say she's at the top of the mm -hmm. spectrum, and everything in between. But the needs of those people, specifically women, are very different. Absolutely. How did you, how did you say we're still progressive and relevant to? younger people with more experience and at the top of the scale? We started segmenting out our content. So we started creating content for different buckets. So we had our launch bucket, which a lot of people start coming to Create and Cultivate when they're about to launch a business because they're looking for so much information. So right. that was a huge opportunity. Did, we, you, did you categorize it like this is a, you know, a launch platform or a launch party? So we basically on the website itself, you could go to launch content specifically. Um, we had small business content, which was what our bucket was, you know, of women sub 1 million in rev, you know, sub 20 employees. Um, then we had our, you know, sort of venture funding arm of, of the conversation because what we found was what women really wanted to learn about at Create and Cultivate overarchingly was fundraising. Um, and especially oh, interesting. This, this is the time period of the aways and the glossiers and everyone raising a yeah. ton of money. Women wanted access to that. And they're like, how do we get there? How do we do that? So the fundraising piece um, was a huge part of our platform as well and giving information on that on that side of things. And then we also had like, you know, our corporate women as well who were in the nine to five, nine to six, um, who were looking for information of like how to navigate, you know, a male dominated workplace, how to ask for a raise, you know. So we were able to kind of create these content buckets online and offline at our events based on the panel conversations that we were having. So I know you have a new venture now that is around fundraising. Talk about how you sort of parlayed that knowledge and key learning into what you're doing now with your with your business partner. Yes. So uh, one of the overarching stats at Create and Cultivate events that everyone says over and over and over again is 2% of VC funding goes to female-led businesses, even less for women of color, which is a staggering stat. And I heard it a billion times and it's awful every time you hear it. Yeah. And I started looking into it and thinking, this is really interesting, but there has to be like, Where's the problem coming from? And in doing my research, I found that actually only 5% of venture firms are run by women. Mm -hmm. And when you start thinking about venture in general, venture is a business built on deal flow. It's who you know, who's in your network. And for the most part, what we found is, you know, people in your network oftentimes look like you are from similar backgrounds as you. Yeah. So when you start looking at the demographic of who a venture capitalist is, which is typically an older white man, their pipeline is going to be built around 
older white men, their relationships and the conversations they're having. And I realized this is a pipeline issue. And as someone who has the ultimate female pipeline, having started Create and Cultivate and access to so many amazing women-owned businesses, I was like, this is a great way for me to take a next step into what I want to be doing. I'd been angel investing for a really long time, loved doing that, but I really wanted to formalize out what that could look like. And so I launched New Money Ventures in January of this year. It's a $20 million consumer fund focused on funding the next generation of female-led, female-run businesses. So Jacqueline, I can sense there's a pattern here. <laughs> yes, and the pattern, a thread. The pattern is you see a need or something that you want and it doesn't exist, and you invent it. Yes, yes, solving That's, problems. That is the pattern. Yes. I'm sure it didn't go well right away, or or did it? But you can tell me, like, what did you learn? What were some of the obstacles that you hit? Um, I'm also curious, sorry to pepper you with questions, but in your research, these venture funds or this, this I don't know, this money, was it basically bi-coastals? Like, you got, you know, Silicon Valley, LA, let's call it California or New York. Was it basically you know, 48% in each uh, coast? Or did you find that all these, this bro network was all over the place? Or like, what did you find? It's all over the place. Okay. Um, <laughs> so it's really been a fascinating journey to go from a female dominated industry into a male dominated industry. Yeah. And what's interesting is that in launching New Money Ventures, um, you know, again, my female pipeline, amazing. You know, I get so many great opportunities. But what I've been actively working on is talking to as many male centric VCs or male run VCs to get into their network. Cause I'm like, I want your pipeline. You want my pipeline. Let's like share yeah. deal flow. And it's been great being able to do that. Um, well, and no one goes into business thinking, you know, just a one lane gender highway. Of course. It's like, you know, if you're in the bro network, it's just a function of your experience and past. Exactly. Right? And so for you to vent this, that's smart, but yeah. Yeah. It's Why been, limit yourself, right? Exactly. Yeah, of yeah. course. And it's just been interesting, though, because I think a lot of the early conversations we had were, I need more women on my cap table. So I want to chat, chat with you. Or, you know, other funds were saying, hey, there's no women on the cap table. We need to get you into this conversation. Oh, yeah. And on, you know, on the flip side, you know, I started asking people, like, oh, do you have any women on your cap table um, in the VC space? Obviously, angels and things like that. But overarchingly, it was no. Very smart. Another lesson, if you missed it. Um, again, finding that white space and being the change that you want to see or stepping up and executing where you know you can execute. Mm -hmm. You know, there's no, you weren't fronting. Yeah. I mean, you were just looking for the opportunity. Yeah. 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 Um, how did you pick your business partner? So my my partner on the fund and in May was my CFO and COO at Create and Cultivate. Okay. So I, you know, we've been through dynamic duo. Yes, and and opposite duo, which I think is really great. She is finance ops, all those things. Former, you know, banker. I'm creative strategy, all those different things. So it's kind of a perfect um, match, if yeah. you will. Um, but yeah, it's been. How did you guys meet? So actually, she, through one of the partners at Create and Cultivate, but she randomly applied for the job on LinkedIn and then realized she had a connection after. Okay. So sometimes it happens like yeah, that. Yeah. Fruit falls over the fence and totally. it's like, you know, yeah. you realize how amazing it is. That's lucky. Yes. Very lucky. It's hard to find those people that stick with you through challenging situations like a global pandemic in running an events company, uh, an acquisition, and a sale. Like those are trying times for sure. Well, yeah, and who's the yin to your yang? Yes. I mean, that's that's hard to find. Yeah. What are, what else have you learned along the way doing this new? Yeah, I mean, I think in learning, I think I'm realizing that venture can be a very insular environment. You know, I think I do a lot of mentoring and a lot of things of that nature, and, and everyone always asks me, how do I raise venture? How do I get into the room? And it is a, a relationship-based relationship business, and I'm looking to try and give more access wherever I can, and learning how to do that correctly and, and where that makes sense. Well, from what I know, I mean, insular in the sense that these venture folks are just looking for either the unicorns or they're looking for a, the return. Yes. Right. That's, yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And I mean, I mean, insular in the sense that like it is a very coastal 
business. I think I've talked to a lot of people who are, you know, in the middle of the country that are like, I want to raise money for my business. How do I do that? Okay. And it becomes much more challenging, I think, when you're not in the mix of Silicon Valley or New York City or whatever it might be. Right. Um, and have those ins to the right people. Um, so I think, you know, one trend I've been seeing and I really love is like micro funds. So funds that are, you know, sub five hundred thousand dollars, even $100,000 and that they're doing these like micro investments. Um, and these are young people l launching these funds. I know one girl in particular is like still at USC and launched her own micro fund, which is awesome. Um, so I'd love seeing that kind of democratization of venture because it, I don't think it should be these only $800 million funds that are getting all the access to all the unicorns, as you put it, yeah. but really, you know, kind of spreading out that, that wealth and that opportunity. So how are you getting the word out? How yeah. are you doing that? I think for us, you know, I take a lot of pitches and sometimes they're right for us, sometimes they're not right for us. Um, and I'm always very, I try to give as much clarity and feedback as possible in terms of like why it wasn't right for us, but then also steering them in the direction where a fund might actually be interested in introducing them to those funds. Okay. One thing that's really great is that the female fund network is very strong and we do a lot of deal flow with each other. And I've been happy to see some of my friends fund things I couldn't necessarily fund because it wasn't maybe the right stage or opportunity for us. So right. really trying to help those businesses rise to the top. And what pushback did you get from like the bro network have, have you been surprised or i wouldn't say i've gotten any pushback i think there's been a lot of great allies that have like really helped us but i think there is a um there's a little bit of a sense of we'll see how your first fund goes and then right. we'll talk you're new to at you. this yes exactly yeah which is fair enough right um but i think at the end of the day like there needs to be more um hey like jump in let's go and like let's help each other out versus like i'm gonna wait and see how you do right and so how are you measuring success then on some of these? Yeah, I mean, we're measuring success as any VC would, right? Like what's our return? What does it look like? How are they raising? How are they doing as a business? But what we really bring to the table is money and mentorship. And that is really our stance uh, in the market. We don't write a check and then say, call us when you're exiting. You know, we go in and really provide as much mentorship as possible because we were them, you know, and, and I have a lot of insight into exiting companies, building companies, managing large teams. And so with our portfolio companies, you know, we're texting on the daily, you know, we're helping each other out, we're connecting the dots where we can. And so we're pr trying to provide as much value as possible alongside, obviously, cash. Yeah. Is it as velvet rope as it sounds or maybe walled garden? Like, so if, if a male founder comes to you and says, we want to do this. I mean, it's it's a female fund, but like. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, work? we meet with, you know, male founded companies all the time. Just, you know, obviously love to see like what's in the market. Can we connect them to other people that might make sense? But we also look at companies that have women in the C-suite. So women that are, you know, maybe not the founder, but they're the CMO or, you know, they're involved in some way, shape or form or yeah. women that have co-founders on the cap table, you know, but it's male women. We look at those types of companies as well. Yeah. So you're looking at the aggregate. Yeah. So so what's your ideal what does that look like? Yeah. So we've invested in a ton of different brands kind of all over the place, which is what we like. You know, we like to be in a lot of different categories. We've invested in Gia, which is a non-alcoholic aperitif. We've invested in Doe, which is good for you cookie dough. K-Skin, which is Winnie Harlow's son, Caroline. Okay. So I'm going to I'm gonna play Shark Tank here yeah, for a second. I've been, Two of those brands have been on Shark Tank, by the way. <laughs> right on. A question or a comment that they usually say that I hear a lot is, oh, you have a product, you don't have a brand. Yeah. So do you ever do that kind of oh, evaluation? Because yeah. most of these brands that you just mentioned, I haven't heard of. Interesting. So I, maybe I'm just not in the demo or I'm just not in the know or I'm yeah. too, too in this you know vacuum of what I'm doing. But it's like, how do you determine, how do you vet those and yeah. say, this is a brand or this is a, right now it's just still a product. Yeah, I think we do a really good job of investing in brands. I think the brands that we're invested in ha are doing something very different and unique in the marketplace. And the product is different and unique in the marketplace. But the brands that we are invested in are 
at least to our demographic or like the demographic that they're going after are extremely well known and disrupting in some way, shape or form. Okay. So we. So look, that's the key. The key. Okay. Founder first is like the number one thing. Like, do we believe in the founder? Right. Are they, you know, the right person to be running this business? Are they here for the long haul? You know, what's their. And, and is that goal? because it's more about people than it is the idea? For sure. I mean, I think, you know, especially having been a founder, like the founder is the heart and soul of the company, you know, if and if they are doing this for the wrong reasons, if they're tapping out at too early or looking for something that doesn't align with the best interest of the company, like that's a red flag for us out the gate. Um, so founder relationship is key. And then secondary is, is this product disruptive? You know, is it solving a problem? You know, why does this need to be in the world? Yeah. Talk about that with the context of your wine brand. So how how is that then becoming a brand, if it's a brand, talk about that, you know, introduce that and then let's discuss whether or not it's a brand yet. Yes, yeah, totally. So part of the fund um, we allocated uh, towards the atelier and the atelier was to create brands that we wanted to see in the world when we didn't see the ones out there that we wanted to invest in. So May is the first brand out of the atelier. And so May is looking to disrupt the single serve wine category. Um, and it was built around solving a problem. So during the pandemic, I would say I drank a lot. I don't know about <laughs> most people, but I was drinking a lot. I joined a ton of wine clubs um, and basically found myself, you know, kind of trying to cut back. And what I realized was I'd open these nice bottles of wine. I realized I don't want to. <laughs> and then I realized I don't want to, no. I don't um, need to, yeah. But I would open a bottle of wine on like a Monday night, pour a glass, put it back in my fridge, forget about it for three to four days, go back, doesn't taste as good. I end up using it to cook, you know, a pasta dish or whatever. And that's a nice bottle of wine. And you're like, why do I keep having this experience of like pouring wine down the drain or cooking with wine? Um, and, you know, not feeling like I got that full experience and that full value. Then secondary was Neha, my partner on May, is a red drinker. I'm a white drinker. So she would come over for dinner or we'd, you know, be having a little happy hour. I'd open a nice bottle of red, bottle of white, same scenario. I don't drink red. So I was like, just take it home with you, I guess. Or I end up wasting it and putting it on the kitchen counter. Yeah. And we kept saying, this is such an interesting experience. Yeah. So we're like, single serve. Obviously, that's the solution. Right. And then we go to the single serve market and majority of products are canned. And not to say there's anything wrong with canned products, they're just not the elevated experience you want, specifically for still wine. Like I don't love the taste, the experience, the look and feel. It just doesn't give me that, you know, kind of elevated. Yeah, it's not White Claw, let's say. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Like you feel like you're opening a White Claw, exactly. Yeah. So we're like, let's, you know, we want to create something in the single serve category that's a glass of wine in a bottle, yeah. in a glass bottle, um, and really create something that's great for moderation if you're looking to cut back. It's great for hosting if you're hosting a bunch of people and everyone wants to open their own varietal that they're excited about. Um, and it creates an experience and a vibe around wine in general. Because I, during the pandemic, while I was drinking a lot, also started looking into the wine industry as a whole and started taking classes to become a sommelier. So now I'm on level three, which is mm. so fun. I've learned a lot about the business um, and obviously, you know, sort of the science behind everything in the wine industry. But the wine industry, much like the art world, is very insular. It feels very gated. It feels very pretentious. And it feels like if you don't know what you're talking about, you feel like an idiot. Right. You're at dinner, you know, someone pours the wine there. You're like swirling it, you taste it and you're like, it's great, you know, but you don't know what you're tasting for. You don't know if it is great. Is yeah. it just good? And we want to solve for that and really provide wine education and availability and accessibility through May uh, to make people feel more excited, especially a younger generation about wine. Yeah, again, I'm picking up on patterns in yes. your life, which is, which is, I think, really smart that you you want to be a practitioner, but you also want to be an expert at everything that you are doing so that I'm sure that that's not your end game <laughs> to be that sommelier, right? Oh, yeah, no. Uh, but I feel like you wanted it to be part of your repertoire yeah. so that you could at least speak from credibility and Absolutely. have that point of view. Definitely. Which is, again, another, you know, if we just take that, concept and we implant it into another whatever your business or your idea is again it's the same kind of um vigilance that's important to become you know top top that's that's top shelf stuff that's not half-assing it mm -hmm. that's like you're doing it to the nth degree which is not unlike what you did in the events business or other this is a pattern and and probably i would say uh, for you, at least, it's a key factor of success. And I think that's fantastic. 
Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. <laughs> you know, a lot of people watch the show. They are entrepreneurs, small business peeps, and or they're dreaming of their next adventure. Uh, what advice would you have to them? People who are just maybe just getting started stage one. I mean, I think first and foremost, ask yourself the tough questions when you're before you launch, right? Why am I the right person to start this company? Why does this product need to exist in the world? You know, where is it in terms of market competition? Why is it better, cheaper, faster, stronger, whatever yeah. it is that you're sort of creating? So what if you have that imposter syndrome, mm. which is so typical with all of us who don't feel 100% ready to ship? Yeah. Right? What do you say to that? I interviewed Martha Stewart uh, like three years ago and I asked her about imposter syndrome and she was like, I have no idea what that is. And it was <laughs> my favorite answer of yeah. all time. Martha, that's, that yes. fits. Yeah. Like how for, for everyone else. Yes, yeah. She's not a badass. Totally. But I think if th there is no better time to start a business than right now, I think there is more access to capital, more access to opportunity, more access to education online. You know, 15 years ago, you couldn't build a website in a day. You couldn't do it. You'd have to hire someone. It was all code. You couldn't update it. You didn't know how to deal with it. Now you can go online, buy a product from Alibaba, build your site on Shopify and launch a business in a day. That never existed before. So I think to be an entrepreneur or a small business owner to start something today, it is the best time to start and the best time to start without a perfect plan. Yeah. Because everything is moving so fast that even if you have a five-year plan, the perfect launch strategy, something's going to change in the first six months. And you're going to have to pivot and be flexible and change and learn and grow. So why not just start? I think Reid Hoffman, like who's the LinkedIn guy, he said, if you're not embarrassed by your first launch, 100%. it's too late. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's all about brand building, right? Yeah. So even I'm just you know gleaning or imagining what your first event looked like. And I'm sure it was pretty awesome. It was great for compared, what it was. Yeah. Compared to like what was in the market. Yeah. Imposter syndrome is a thing if you don't feel qualified. Mm -hmm. But if like you feel qualified but you're not sure if you're ready, that's the difference. Yeah. Because because you probably are ready. Yeah. You just haven't done it before. Exactly. And so you have no proof or track record. You might doubt yourself. Yeah, I, I that's just, natural. Be unattached to the outcome. Be walk yourself through worst case scenario. Yeah. It fails. Yeah. You start shipping things, they explode, <laughs> whatever, you know, yeah. like think. Well, we don't want to do that though, right? I mean, um, because people will judge us and that's that's part of the branding. Yeah. Is, oh, you don't want that to happen is what I'm saying. But right. if you accept that that could be the worst case scenario, anything else but that will be great. It's like, if you can afford to make those mistakes, mm. you, you ought to be taking them. Yeah. Right. Because if you can ship that thing and it's not perfect, but it's still good enough, then and you're building your brand like that, that's fine. But like, if you go out of the gate and you completely miss the mark, that's- Oh, it matters. Yeah. It matters a ton, right? And that's that's how people build a brand yeah. for good or for bad, right? Like, people I think judge a, you on- I always tell this story because I think it's a great story, but dough, the good for you cookie dough that we're invested in. A perfect example though of something that five years ago would have never worked, but works today. She, uh, you know, chocolate chip is like her biggest flavor and she, her oat flour supplier during the supply chain nightmare, which is still existing, but completely went under. Yeah. She had to get a new oat flour supplier. And so she gets a new oat flour supplier and they start making the chocolate chip cookies. And, you know, the team calls her and is like, it just looks different. Like it's chunky. And so she like runs down to check on it. And it, it is a totally different product. And instead of basically being like, throw it out. We have to start from scratch. She went on TikTok and said, supply chains are rough. I'm a small business owner. We launched this. We have this, you know, issue happening. So we're going to do a limited run of Oopsie Dough, <laughs> um, uh, a new oatmeal chocolate chip yeah. flavor. It completely sold out. That's transparent. Thanks. That's honest. That's vulnerable. That's, exactly. That builds trust. Yeah. So I'm glad that you clarified that because that's, again, an another great lesson. Well, again, I could talk to you for another three hours. Tell people where they can find the various things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you can find me. I'm mostly on Instagram, but dabbling in TikTok at Jacqueline R. Johnson. And then you can shop May at DrinkMay, DrinkMay.com. And then New Money Ventures is at NewMoneyVentures.co. If you want to pitch for funding, please do. And at Create Cultivate. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to leave a review and as many stars as you think this show deserves. It helps more people find us and join the community. 
I'll catch you in the next episode. Thanks very much. Like I say, man, always said it. It's not about the destination.